0: Every day of our lives is spent in the built environment. We live in homes and apartments, drive on roads, get gas from pipelines, go to work in buildings, make purchases in stores and restaurants. We rely on factories, plants, doctor's offices, and hospitals for our basic human needs. And while our world continues to shift and grow and change, the development and delivery of the built environment has fallen dramatically behind. Welcome to a special mini series of the Built Revolution podcast. We're engaging with leaders and experts to discuss how the energy transition, renewables, technology, and ESG are changing the way we build. This podcast is brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group.
1: Hello and welcome to the Built Revolution Energy Series, co-sponsored by Victolic and Continuum Advisory Group. This is Clark Ellis, Principal with Continuum Advisory Group, and your host for the Built Revolution energy series podcast thank you for joining us today and i hope you'll enjoy this session uh, we're going to be speaking with patrick goodman a process engineer and fellow on clean hydrogen technologies with Fluor, and the conversation is going to focus on what's happening with hydrogen uh, the hydrogen economy and how things are likely to emerge over the next several years and a couple of decades. And Patrick's going to share a lot of his insights with us today to help us all get a little smarter on this really interesting and really important element and all the technologies and and industries surrounding it. So thank you, Patrick, for for joining us. Please uh, give our listeners a little bit of a background on you and and your career so we kind of understand where you're coming from.
2: Sure. Thanks, Clark. I appreciate you having me. As you said, I've I've been with Flora about 17 years now. I'm a fellow in clean hydrogen technologies. Uh, I have expertise in both the traditional and what we might call emerging forms of hydrogen production. Specifically, my subject matter expertise lies in hydrogen production, syngas processing, and process simulation. So in general, I got a start in this industry working on gasification projects in the 2000s, producing syngas from coal or petroleum coke producing things like methanol, hydrogen, fissure tropes, liquids, and synthetic natural gas. Uh, when natural gas prices kind of fell off in the late 2000s, though, steam methane and autothermal reforming, uh, really producing the same sort of products became much more in vogue. And those technologies are still very much alive and well today. But certainly over the past few years, electrolysis has broken out and been the focus of a lot of discussion, especially as it relates to decarbonization. Right. Right? So. Certainly a, a broad range of, of experience around hydrogen. Fantastic. It sounds like
1: a, a great background and very well positioned for, for what's going on in the market and in, in industry these days. Yeah, I've also been following some of the, the development of electrolysis and, and the development and technologies for, for uh, the electrolyzers, some, some very interesting things going on there. But before we, we kind of dig into uh, the specifics, I think we all understand that hydrogen could be playing and probably will play a huge role. connecting and reshaping current power, gas, chemicals, industries, and letting countries and industries meet their net zero emissions targets that are all coming in sometime between now and 2050. So if we could kind of start with an overarching basic question of how do you see the future of hydrogen as part of the energy demand in the coming years?
2: Sure. Well, to start off, I mean, hydrogen's always been a big part of our energy resources, a lot of it being used in the refinery sector and for fertilizer production. Uh, These two areas touch virtually every part of your day-to-day life in the products we purchase and the foods we consume. But being at least a step or two removed from the end products, they kind of lie in the background for most people. Uh, Lately, there's been a lot more focus on the transportation sector where hydrogen can fit with fuel cell electric vehicles. You might have seen a few of the Toyota Mirais driving around, um, and there's plenty of others that are starting to roll out. I think this is something that people can relate to a bit more directly. And to be honest, especially in the U.S., people just like their cars and they've always loved to talk about them. So, you know, I do think hydrogen will figure into the mobility market, especially in more heavy duty applications like trucks and buses and trains. But personally, I see the existing industrial applications really being the front runner in terms of advancing clean hydrogen into the mainstream and in the projects we're doing now we're we're seeing this already the the first large scale green ammonia facilities are well under development and uh looking to be deployed mid this decade and these these larger volume industrial installations i think also will provide a path to make hydrogen available for some of the smaller uh, niche markets but growing markets like fuel cell vehicles uh you know we have this chicken and an egg problem with hydrogen fueled vehicles. You know, you don't want to buy a hydrogen car because you've got no hydrogen stations around you, Um, but then you don't want to build hydrogen stations because there's no hydrogen cars. So having these larger facilities, being able to produce a main product and then producing hydrogen for vehicles on the side really supports that infrastructure that's needed for the wider deployment in the vehicle sector. As far as 2050 goes, you know, there's lots of projections on the highest level some of the projections around hydrogen demand are that it could increase five to ten times as much as it is today now I, I certainly won't pretend to have any better crystal ball than than the experts that make those projections i mean we're talking 20 to 30 years in the future but whatever the increase is it seems fair to me that we'll have a much more diverse demand profile for hydrogen than we have today we'll keep those traditional hydrogen uses like for fertilizers. Uh, liquid fuels, things like methanol. we will also have hydrogen for transportation, power generation, and eventually a, a very key component will be long-term energy storage. And maybe looking even a little more broadly at beyond green hydrogen and looking at CO2 capture, uh, it's, it's going to be an important asset as well for new feedstock applications where we can actually use the carbon dioxide that's been captured and combine it with all this hydrogen Make new products rather than just trying to stick all the CO2 in the ground somewhere. Right,
1: right. Well, that's that's a great great answer. I appreciate the overview there. Uh, so it sounds to me like uh, something that's obviously been a huge part of our industry uh, and energy industry, particularly for many years, and obviously is is one of the most abundant, if not the most abundant, elements in in the world or in in in, uh, in existence. It makes a lot of sense uh, as we as we move forward. So. One of the things that comes up a lot in uh, in the research and also in uh, in conversation are the various colors of hydrogen. I think it, it's easy for people to get a, a little confused. What's meant when when people refer to blue, green, gray, turquoise, and maybe even other other colors? As everyone in industry is working towards the green H H two. Um, and so, what are your thoughts on how fast the industry will transition to green? But before we get to that, if you, could, if you could maybe give our listeners a little bit of definition around the different colors so that we're, that we're very clear what we mean when we say blue, green, et cetera.
2: Yeah, sure. The, the number of colors that have been assigned to the various types of hydrogen is, is really staggering, for sure, to say the least. You know, Starting off today, we have mostly what they call gray hydrogen, which is your traditional hydrogen uh, made from fossil fuels. Uh, The hydrogen itself is carbon free, but the process of making it emits a lot of carbon into the air um, because generally it's made from things like coal or natural gas and all that carbon that's in the coal or natural gas has to be rejected to make the hydrogen. Green hydrogen can mean a lot of different things depending on where you are, but in general, we look at green hydrogen as hydrogen that's been produced via electrolysis with renewable energy, uh, so essentially no carbon going into that product. Blue hydrogen is still fossil-based, same traditional processes we've always had, but instead of sending all that CO2 off into the atmosphere, we capture it and we do something with it, whether putting it in the ground or reusing it in some way. Those are kind of the three main that we focus on. There's others, like you mentioned, turquoise is is referring to pyrolysis. Uh, sometimes people talk about pink for nuclear-based hydrogen, uh, which is really Still green hydrogen, but nuclear always has its own special class. Yeah. And, and there's many more. I will say, though, that the industry as a whole uh, feels the pain of the various colors. And I think even those of us in the industry are experiencing a little bit of color fatigue.
1: And ultimately,
2: what we'll, we'll get to is just the carbon intensity rather than the color. Because even when we talk about green, you know, there's so many shades of green. It's, you know... It's not meaningful to some extent.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense, and, and if experts in the industry are getting color fatigue, then I, I, as we message this out to the general public, it'll just become more more challenging. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, so that, that I appreciate that. So, really, for I guess for our, our listeners right now we're hopefully are moving towards a a more precise way of conveying the performance, I guess, or the performance characteristics of of the different hydrogen products that are out there. But in in the meantime, gray is the traditional hydrogen that's produced from fossil fuels. Green is through electrolysis with renewable energy sources and blue is I guess blue blue is one. Can you go through that one more time for, for myself and our listeners just to make sure we've got
2: that? Uh. Sure. So so the blue hydrogen is is essentially gray hydrogen, but instead of sending the CO two off to the atmosphere, we capture it, okay. and sequester it or reuse it. Um, so it's still fossil based. Um, it's essentially a, a very cleaned up version of gray. And mm-hmm. you know, there's there's debate about you know what qualifies as blue. And again, this gets back to the carbon intensity. Is it 60% of the carbon captured? Is it 90%? Is it 95%? Um, do you count upstream natural gas production? Um, so there's a lot of nuances there. Okay.
1: Thank you. And I, I apologize for being behind the curve on this, but I, I, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that, that I'm interested in, in, in talking about or hearing from you on is what do you see as far as a transition maybe away from the gray and the blue, uh, where we're still using traditional methods of of, of producing the hydrogen, wh- whether we're capturing the carbon or not, towards techniques and, and processes that won't, won't produce any, any uh, CO2.
2: Yeah, I mean, the world's certainly a, a changing place, right? We see that all around us. I think the interesting thing about this energy transition, we like to call it, is that even our traditional energy clients, uh, we see them proactively moving towards cleaner technologies. Uh, you know, in the past, it's been government mandate comes down and we have to abate this or remove the SOx, uh, remove the NOx, things like that, all these different pollutants. You know, we still see some of that. I would say there's, in the current government framework, there's more incentives uh, available, at least in the U.S., than, than penalties. Uh, now that varies in different parts of the world. Um, but aside from that aspect of it, we do see clients proactively moving towards cleaner technologies because their customers just demand it. You know, everybody wants to make this world a better place, you know, leave it better off than we found it. It sounds like there's,
1: there's a, a change that you're seeing in terms of the, the motivation maybe for producers uh, moving from more of a regulatory framework or a government governance driven framework to more of a, of a demand. Framework.
2: Yeah, I mean there's certainly aspects of both, but I, I think historically some of those stewardship aspects have been underemphasized in the past um, compared to what we're seeing today.
1: When you say customers, is that more of a general all the way to consumers, or is it also the you know the businesses that are partnering with and are customers for the for the producers?
2: So there's, there's aspects that are, you know, true customer driven when you're looking at in products. I mean, we have some very interesting uh, developers out there that are trying to make clothes out of algae and all kinds of things like that. Um, but the, the business cycle runs where the money flows, right? So um, I would say there's, there's a strong drive from investors. Uh, you know, we hear this term ESG, environmental social governance, governance. So, you know, the investment community more and more is factoring that in rather than just dollars and profits. They're they're looking at, you know, what's the risk? What's the risk to our planet? What's the risk to our social lifestyle? And how does that, you know, it's hard to assign a dollar value to that, but I think we've gotten to the point where investors are are demanding that we at least consider it.
1: It sounds like you're seeing at least in uh, from your vantage point Something that is 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 a pretty significant trend. You know, kind of I think up.
2: so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and you know, certain industries and certain certain companies um, that do not have a diverse portfolio. You know, you look at the natural gas utilities across the country. They sell one thing. They sell carbon, yeah. and uh, like it or not, that's that's falling out of fashion. Uh, so for some of them, it's an existential threat to their business. And and so they're very proactively looking at diversifying into things like hydrogen. Yeah, so,
1: yeah, it's a, absolutely a great example. Switching gears a little bit, but may, maybe you know, moving more towards um, towards your organization. Uh, you know, one of the largest uh, EPC or engineering, procurement, construction companies uh, on the planet with with focus on energy transition. How do you see floors positioning? Uh, as it relates to you know the d- different types of hydrogen production, storage, and transport uh, in the market.
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, Fluor has been involved with hydrogen for you know decades, well, well before I was born, um, and well, you know, we have and will continue to support our clients as they move towards some of these more environmentally conscious uh, technologies. Uh, We're also seeing new clients that need our support to take their products or processes from the lab or demo scale to full commercialization. So we're engaged kind of on on both these fronts, which is really an exciting time. Our history uh, with blue hydrogen uh, is is pretty pretty good. We have both pre-combustion and post-combustion carbon capture projects um, in our past history, as well as many active today as well as the traditional reforming and gasification projects. And to be honest with a lot of those projects, uh, the heavy lifting was already done, especially when you're making something other than energy, you're making an actual commodity or a product. Uh, oftentimes you have to remove the CO2 anyway from the process. Right. In the past, we've sent that out the stack because there's nothing to do with it. Now to mitigate the emissions, we have to take that final step and sequester it Or reuse it, and so it's it just becomes a matter of economics and balancing the dollars with that good financial or good financial and good environmental stewardship, and uh, you know we're seeing that change today, certainly from a government level, uh, you know the expansion of the forty five Q tax credits, uh, which are the tax credits around CO two sequestration this year are really helping make those projects much more viable than they ever have been in the past. Now, on the green hydrogen front, again, we've been involved. Historically, it's, it's been much more chloralkali projects to make chemicals, but there's the same fundamental electrolysis technology underlying it. And you know, it seems exciting and new, but you might not realize that the first large-scale electrolysis plant came online back in the 1920s. I mean, close to 100 years ago. Still, though, the projects today, on the table today, dwarf anything done in the last century when it comes to electrolysis. So we're engaged with these traditional major electrolysis technology suppliers, as well as uh, the new guys that are coming out, supporting them through our subject matter experts. Uh, We have a group called the Business Incubation Group, supporting startups. And then also uh, special programs like the Carbon and Value Initiative uh, we're involved with as well. I will say, though, green hydrogen has had several false starts over the decades. I think it was the 1970s that you first started to hear about something called the hydrogen economy. Um, And certainly that hasn't come to fruition so far. Um, We're talking about it again now. Uh, I think the difference here, though, is that in the past 10 years, renewable energy cost has dropped sharply right? All the new energy projects are solar and wind and they're cheap. And we're seeing coal projects either shutting down early or being canceled um, in many parts of the world. Uh, So that, that really is what makes the difference is having this renewable energy at a very low cost, making green hydrogen possible. So really, uh,
1: and we we've seen that throughout history with with many technologies is you know, when they, they reach a tipping point economically, and then things start to really change. It sounds like we're in, in the midst of that uh, with renewables. I've seen that virtually every every uh, every study that I've looked at recently. Interesting, talking about the first large-scale electrolyzer was built in the twenties. I also was was reading recently that the the first fuel cell vehicle was invented in the eighteen hundreds.
2: Yeah, they go back quite a ways. Yeah, I will say even those those ones in the uh, 1920s, those electrolysis plants. I mean, those were big plants. Um, you know, we talk about projects today and the first projects are in the tens of megawatts of power input. And, uh, you know, later this decade, we're looking at hundreds of megawatts. We had hundreds of megawatts back then, um, and, and it came out of the hydropower industry in, in places like Norway, where they had abundant, clean hydropower and they wanted to figure out a way to do something with it. And electrolysis was the answer at that time.
1: Wow. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. So, you know, for, for hydrogen to make a significant contribution to the clean energy transition, you know, the key has is, is got to be adoption in sectors, you know, where it's, it's really not a factor today, like things like tra- transportation, you know, buildings, steel, cement, power gen. Yeah, how do you see green uh, hydrogen enabling sustainable operations in
2: hard-to-abate industries like these? There's certainly been a lot of debate around, you know, should hydrogen be in the picture? Why can't we just electrify everything? Right. If it is hydrogen versus electrification, which will win? I think this question really drives at that point. It's not an either-or. It's going to be a mix of direct electrification, hydrogen, and other technologies And frankly, if we're going to achieve the climate goals that have been set out, we're going to need all the tools in our tool belt working together. Um, Specific to these, what we call hard to abate sectors you asked about, hydrogen kind of has a special fit because in many of them, you simply can't electrify or it's very difficult to electrify. Um, So we are seeing things like green steel projects gaining traction. Certainly uh, in certain regions, we see that in the vehicle sectors. There's other industries that have pilot or demo projects in development. When it comes down to it, though, you know, we want to work towards a cleaner future. But our consumers today are still going to live their lives and still going to consume products and energy. And they're going to do it the same way they've always been. And so this demand will continue and it's going to fall to the industry to adapt to meet those climate goals. I do see this happening now, and like most things, costs are going to go up some. But overall, I'm optimistic for these sectors. It'll take some time, um, but there's an incredible amount of innovation out there. It's really quite impressive. And um, you know, like I said, we're supporting programs to accelerate deployment of some of these newer technologies. Uh, hopefully, we can shorten the time it takes to ma- make a major impact. And uh, you know, hydrogen, I think, is a piece of that, uh, depending on what resource you read uh, talk about somewhere around 10 to 15 percent of the total final energy demand uh, by 2050 being uh, related to hydrogen so yeah I, I think it's it's key electrification is great and it's going to play a major role but it can't do everything and hydrogen can fill a lot of those gaps
1: right so, so if you, you're, you're saying projecting somewhere between 10 and 15% of the total portfolio for energy by 2050 for hydrogen. So what's the proportion today?
2: Uh, it's, it's much lower today. I'm not sure of the number off my hand, low single okay. digit. I always like to, to share this, this analogy, though. You know Today's uh, gray hydrogen, if we were to replace all of that, it's going to require a lot of power. And it's equivalent to roughly the power demand of all of Europe today to replace all that existing capacity so certainly we need to start there looking ahead to that five to ten times capacity by 2050 right um you know we're talking about expanding the world power supply by double so there's you know some real synergies between electricity and hydrogen um, and it's going to take a monumental effort to get there Um, but so far i think we're on a pretty good path you know we have over history we've had all these you know Accords and agreements between nations, and and largely they've not done very well on meeting their goals. And I'll say, you know, we have the Paris Agreement now, and and certainly I think we are not on track. But I will say we're doing much better than we have in past history, and you know, we have to reach for the stars, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been a great conversation, Patrick. Is there anything else? Um, That you wanted to cover, particularly as we kind of look forward to uh, to 2050, that we haven't talked about so far. Any any other points you want to make?
2: Sure, I'll just wrap it up saying, I mean, 2050 is a long way off, but it will come quickly. And uh, you know, with hydrogen, there's something inherently cool about a fuel that makes nothing but water as a byproduct when it's used. There's there's even been a couple publicity stunts with the car guys drinking water produced from the tailpipe of a fuel cell electric vehicle. Not that I necessarily would recommend that, but, (laughs) you know, hydrogen is pretty unique this way. I mean, with my focus on hydrogen, of course, I'd like to see it become much more common and understandable to the general public, the way, you know, things like gasoline and diesel are today. Um, But whether this direct use happens on a wide scale or if it stays more in the background um, as an intermediary for other products, much like it is today, not really that important in the end. I'm confident it's going to find its place in the market and play a key role. It's a piece of the puzzle. Uh, I, I always emphasize to everyone, you can't depend on a narrow set of technologies. Right? We have to do everything. This means solar. This means wind. Yes, this even means nuclear and smart use of remaining gas and oil reserves. You know, maybe one day even fusion energy will be commercialized or something else entirely new that hasn't been discovered or invented yet. So, you know, the energy transition is a major undertaking. I'm sure there'll be bumps along the way, but 2020s are the decade of hydrogen, I think, and we'll be expanding significantly.
1: Excellent. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for sharing your insights and knowledge on hydrogen technology and the hydrogen economy and the energy transition. Uh, with the Built Revolution Energy Series listeners. And uh, we appreciate having you here. Again, this is Patrick Goodman, a process engineer and fellow on clean hydrogen technologies at Fluor. And this has been the third episode of the Built Revolution Energy Podcast Series, co-sponsored by Victolic and Continuum Advisory Group. And this is Clark Ellis with Continuum Advisory Group saying thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon.
2: Thanks, Clark.
0: Thanks for listening to the Built Revolution Pod, brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group. Continue the conversation on Twitter at Built Revolution Pod, or email us at hello at BuiltRevolutionPod.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals being interviewed, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsoring organizations.